Okay. <clears throat> well, if you would, we're going to continue on in our study of the book of Job this morning. So if you would turn with me, if, if you are able, that would be wonderful. So to do a brief recap of what we've covered in the book of Job, what we're going to talk about today is going to feel a bit similar to what we've talked about already in terms of there's some, some repeated themes, some repeated um, kind of parts of the story that may seem very similar to what we've covered before. But we talked about um, in chapter one, the great wealth of Job, that he was a great wealthy man, the, the greatest man of his region, that he had great um, status, he had a great number of children, great amount of wealth, possessions, and um, a great household full of servants and those who were under his control. Uh, and then we also read of his great faithfulness, that he was a man who a blameless man. He was upright and feared God and turned away from evil. He was a fourfold um, faithfulness. Job was, was not only a wealthy man, but that he was also a faithful man. He had great faith in Yahweh. God, even though, uh, as we talked about, he probably wasn't Jewish. He probably wasn't from Israel. Uh, we don't know exactly where Uz was located, but we know that, that either way, he seems to have faith in the one true God. And then we had this, this scene in heaven in which Satan um, is, is allowed to test Job, that it is God who presents uh, Job to Satan in order to test him. Um, and then we have this great testing of, of Job, this great suffering of Job through the taking of his, of his servants, the taking of his livestock, and then finally uh, the taking of his children through, um, we talked about the, the different methods there of, of Mother Nature, as you may say, or the acts of nature through this great thunderstorm and this great windstorm that, that blows down the house and kills the, the sheep, but also the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, these, these foreign people coming in and, and, creating these, and, and perpetrating these great acts of violence against Job and his family. Um, so Job's, he's lost his savings account, he's lost everything uh, that he could possibly have lost um, in terms of his, his material prosperity in this world. Uh, and, therefore, and then at the end, we read of his great um, confession of faith that he continues to hold fast to his faith in God. Uh, at the end of chapter one, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, and that's where we left off last week. And again, thinking about the book of Job as a piece of wisdom literature, that it is about suffering, that suffering is a great theme of the book of Job. We've covered that uh, many times, especially here in these early chapters. But we also must see that book, Job is a book about wisdom and how we can be wise and how we can gain wisdom through, through the understanding of, of the book of Job. So if we, um, so as we begin this morning, we're going to go through chapter 2 this morning. So I'm going to go ahead and read for us chapter 2. So it says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Excuse me, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. 
Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this, all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come show sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So as we finish this morning with this prologue section, as we look ahead to chapter 3, we begin this long section of dialogue uh, of Job's great lament of the day of his birth, and then finally his three friends begin to speak to him, and we get these cycles of these speeches of Job's three friends and Job's response to them uh, that takes up the bulk of the rest of the book of Job. Uh, This is the end of the prologue, setting up the the context and the ideas that will kind of help direct us uh, and give us clarity as we go throughout the rest of this book of Job. So again, as I said about it, it seems in many ways to be, um, there's some repeated ideas, some repeated um, points of the story with which we read in chapter one that are repeated here. So again, we read of, of the sons of God, these angels coming to present themselves before the Lord, um, and then Satan also comes among them. And it seems, again, to make it even clearer, we talked about in chapter one, uh, that at least in my own misreading of Job in the past, I always thought of Satan as kind of a gate crasher, someone who was uninvited, but yet broke into heaven to, to cause mischief and, and cause division. But it seems as though chapter two makes it even clearer that Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord, that he was called to give account before the Lord in some way for his actions. And then, um, again, Satan gives the same um, response to God of going to and from, walking on the earth. <clears throat> and then um, the Lord again says, have you considered my, my servant Job? He again brings Job up to Satan in this encounter. Uh, and um, give me one second. A few weeks ago, as we talked about this, um, a helpful question was raised of, of this idea of God boasting in Job. How can God boast in a, in a sinful man, in a, in a simple man? Um, how can God boast in Job? And I think a couple different points. Uh, I don't think there's any super, like, very satisfying answer to that question. But I think to put it simply, I think it, it confirms his righteousness that this is now the third time that Job has been described as um, an upright man who fears God, turns away from evil, that we're just confirming again. It's not just the author of the book of Job that has this opinion of Job, and then God says it first off in chapter 1, and then says it again here in chapter 2, just further confirming that Job's suffering, his suffering that has happened and that will continue to happen, is not a result of some hidden sin, that he is truly a man of integrity, that there is no great hidden sin in his life that would warrant this suffering to come upon him, which is a huge theme that, that Job's three friends are going to talk about throughout the, the rest of the dialogue of the book, of this idea that clearly Job has sinned in some grievous way or some hidden way to cause this sin to come upon him. And I think um, these verses should help us confirm even yet again. Uh, I think that these first couple chapters are trying to help us get a really clear idea that Job's um, suffering, what God has allowed to befall Job, is not because of some hidden sin in his life, but simply because of God's good purposes, even though we don't understand them. Uh, And again, we must acknowledge, above all, that all righteousness before God comes by faith, that it is Job's faith that makes him righteous before God. Uh, 
Romans 4 reminds us that it's Abraham's faith that was counted to him as righteousness. And in the same way, we look at Job and say that this great faith that he showed, this great righteousness that, that God seems to, to, to see in Job, first and foremost, comes only by faith. Uh, and Job's true faith in the one true God. Only good, first and foremost, it was his faith, which, proves, uh, which will be proven, especially throughout the rest of this book of Job. Um, and I think one thing we should talk about in this verse before we move on here um, in verse 3, uh, this last phrase, if we, if we don't understand it or we understand it incorrectly, can be something that could be quite concerning to us. Verse 3, this, uh, this small phrase that it says, you incited me, that is God, that you incited me um, against him to destroy him without reason. How could we understand that God would do something without reason? What does that mean? If, if that means what we perhaps fear it means, that would be a, uh, quite a, a horrible thing to think about. So we must think carefully about what it means that God would, would be incited against Job without reason, with no reason. <clears throat> so I think we have to be careful on a couple different fronts, a couple different sides of the path in which we can fall off on and misunderstand what this could clearly mean. I think um, <clears throat> we must first and foremost say that God clearly does have a reason for allowing the suffering to come to Job. Um, it's God who presents Job to Satan. This is kind of in some way God's idea or God's doing to, to bring this, this trial to bear, um, this, this great um, putting down or this um, disarming and, and putting away of, of Satan's accusations. Uh, but clearly God does have some larger plan uh, that will show his glory in the invalidating of Satan's accusations as well as teaching us wisdom through this account. Um, so what was, what was unreasonable, what was without reason, as we've just talked about uh, a few minutes ago, is this idea that, that it was some reason within Job, that it was some thing that Job had done that had just kind of cause and effect. Job had done this, and therefore the effect was the suffering befell him, that it was just A to B, that for some reason Job had sinned, Job had done this, Job had done that, and therefore God had done this to him. Uh, and I think that is what we need to, to understand that, what, again, um, this is not, by the end of this, this chapter alone, we get this clear idea that, that many people, through seeing what had happened to Job, would have assumed that for some reason the wrath of God had come upon Job for some reason. Uh, and yet we must understand that it is, again, here from the lips of God, saying that it was not any reason within Job that this had befallen him, but that it was only for God's plan and for his good pleasure and for his glory. Uh, and, and though we may fall off on that side, I think we can also err on the other side, which is the terrifying reality that perhaps God did it without reason, that if God, that God allows things to befall man simply because of a request of the evil one or simply because he's just, his whims change with the seasons and with his emotions and that he simply just allows things to happen without reason. We do things probably quite often that we do without reason or it doesn't make sense or it doesn't, um, we do things flippantly or arbitrarily uh, and what a terrifying thing if that's what our God means to say about himself in this in this verse, which I think clearly he does not. Um, but how many times perhaps we've heard it, I don't, I don't know if I've ever heard it in my own life, but I've known of, of Christians that have um, accounted to this, that, that perhaps those who, who purport themselves to be Christians will sometimes um, claim that when an evil trial or tribulation comes into, into their life, that, that God had no hand in it. That perhaps when sickness or, or death or whatever it may be comes into one's life in an effort to comfort them, saying, oh, clearly God had no hand in this. God had his back turned, or God was asleep, or God, for some reason, one way or another, had no reason for doing this, or that he was, had his back turned and, and did not, was not aware that this was happening. Um, as I was working at City Mission, I, I knew a man who, who I think found God to be 
Um, he, he likened it to a game of chess, of God just almost being a sadistic chess player, just arbitrarily moving pawns and pieces, not caring for the suffering of, of the pieces that he was playing, but simply just doing as he wished. And again, from our own human perspective, seeming unreasonable or arbitrary, not having an understanding of, of what God is up to. <clears throat> but I think Job makes it clear that though all of these tribulations befall Job at the hands of evil men, acts of nature, and Satan, these acts also come by the hand of God in some way. Um, and and we've, we know, uh, Psalm 121 was our call to worship a few weeks ago, it makes it clear that we do not have a God who sleeps or slumber. We do not have a God that is ever unaware of the, of the actions or the goings-on of the world in which he created Therefore, we must recognize that our God does allow things to befall us from our human perspective that make no sense and seem against all reason. It doesn't seem to be reasonable that some things happen to us in the way that they happen, but yet we must also be careful not to go to the other extreme and believe that God does all things um, without reason or that there's some specific reason that we must search out and find for everything that befalls us. Um, but that in some ways, again, as we talk about wisdom, we must just be aware that we are foolish, we are dumb, we do not understand the ways of God, and that God is wise, and that God has his purposes for the things that he allows to befall us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a good question. I, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure. Um, I think I can take it that way. Some people take it as kind of when, um, when God is boasting of Job, that, that in some way is kind of a taunt against Satan, of God kind of setting Satan up in some way, being like, hey, look at my servant Job. Look how awesome he is. And then it's kind of like, setting Satan up in that way. So perhaps, again, in this way, it's kind of Job just, because I think Satan is foolish. Satan has a limited understanding of God's ways, too, kind of in the same way that we do. So I, I think you could take that and say, in Satan's limited understanding, it was, he was the one that, that incited God against Job. It was him that, that had control over God to allow this to happen. But clearly, yeah, we know that's not, not the case. So that's an interesting question, though. And, no, that's all right. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's how I take it personally. I think, I mean, Satan does clearly have his reasons. He, he's accusing, say, accusing Job and accusing God in the same breath of, of, I think he's trying to prove this accusation true. So I think Satan does have a reason. Yeah, I guess I've always, as I've read it, understood it to be that, that God is the one saying that I had no reason to allow this to befall Job. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe going to the original language. I don't know. That's a good question, though. No, it's helpful. But you're working through it, even if this is reported God's way, it's not always the case. To me, I was trying to dismiss it 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the without reason is just to make it extra clear that there was no reason within Job that this happened. That God does have, obviously have a reason, but the reason is not Job in and of himself. That there was nothing that Job did to bring this upon himself. It's not some judgment or wrath that God brought upon Job. It's just God did it for his own glory, for his own reasons, for his own wisdom, and yet we don't understand it. So I think that's, that's how I take it, is to mean that primarily. That's a good question, though. Yeah. So then we get, again, we talked about that accusation against God. Uh, we read another accusation of, of Satan, the accuser, uh, this, this accuser in heaven, that um, these kind of two proverbs here, skin for skin, and then the second proverb, all that a man has he will give for his life, kind of these quippy sayings of saying, uh, almost in effect saying that, that though you've taken all these things from Job, though Job has suffered all of this, this great suffering, um, that Perhaps it didn't mean anything to him. It's just his wealth. It's just his children. Perhaps none, none of it mattered. It really wasn't real suffering because he hasn't lost his life or he hasn't lost his health. Um, the loss of his wealth, his children, all of it, Job is clearly too selfish and self-centered to care about those things. Um, he hasn't lost anything of real importance to him. Therefore, that's why he hasn't turned and cursed God yet. So therefore, we need to, we need to go further. We need to continue. I need to continue to, to, co to cause Job suffering, and therefore, then he will turn his face and curse you. Um, and then the Lord allows this to happen, which I think as we read that, we have to think to ourselves, why, God, no. It's, it's gone far enough. Why would you allow this to happen? And again, it's, I think it's that, uh, that dichotomy that we talk about in the book of Job between our own wisdom and God's wisdom, our foolishness and God's wisdom, that as we read this, we say, no, there's no reason for the suffering to continue. There's no reason why God would, would allow Satan to continue to, to test and cause this great suffering to Job, and yet he does. It doesn't make sense to us, but for some reason in God's providence and God's sovereignty, he has seen it fit to allow the suffering to continue. And the answer, um, I think, lies at what's at stake, as we talked about in chapter one, that what's at stake is God's glory, that not only is Satan accusing Job, but that he's also accusing God to his face, that he's not worthy of glory and honor and power, and that if his people suffer, if his people don't get to treat him as a cosmic vending machine, getting at what they want when they want, that they'll turn their face and that he will deserve no glory because that is how his people feel about him, which is this accusation that Satan is levying against our God. So that God's glory is preeminent, uh, and what's at, what's at stake most in this book, at least to this point, is, is God's glory. That, and I think it, it helps us, us to see that God allows us to continue to go further, to continue to show his own glory and his own worthiness to be praised, to see his, the way that he has both grace on his people to um, preserve them through suffering, but also that his people do not worship him simply because of what they can get out of the equation, but simply out of faith in, in their God. Um, this book teaches us, and I think this, this phrase is something that, that I struggle a lot with, but I think is true of the book of Job, that it teaches us that even above our own health, our own wealth, our own comfort, is the preeminence of God's glory and his complete worthiness to be praised and worshiped. That in some ways, God allows those things to, to befall us for the purposes of his own glory, which is certainly much easier said than than believed or lived or felt in our, in our hearts. Um, as, I've, as I've worked through this, just even reading that and, and writing that sentence, it just feels so callous because I know that in my own life, it often doesn't feel that way. It is my own comfort, it is my own pleasure that, that I see above all else. And that, uh, to see God allow that to, to maybe go away for the purposes of his own glory is something that 
I think, is a struggle and something that is, is easier said than it is lived. Um, but yet God gives us grace for those moments of, of suffering and difficulty. Um, so then we see Job's pain no longer becoming abstract. Um, and again, we think of all the loss. It's, it's many ways abstract. The loss of relationship, the loss of financial security, all of those things in some way are abstract. But now the pain is acute. It is physically physical pain in which he can feel in his own body. So then Satan goes out from the presence of the Lord and strikes Job with these sores. It's no longer, Satan isn't using the, the weather. He isn't using any other foreign nations. He goes out and he does the job himself. He's, he's ready to see this accusation against God brought, brought forth. He's ready to, to claim this victory, and therefore he goes out and he just does it himself. Um, and we must understand that, that again, this as we read this perhaps through the eyes of those reading this the first time, that for Job's skin to be infected, for those to see this physical malady on his skin, that his illness was, was external, visible, that again, this would be another sign to those seeing Job, for those reading the book of Job as a sign of the wrath of God, that his sickness was, was this external, visible sickness, which again, as you gaze upon him, would say, okay, this man is clearly in some way under the wrath of God, as if his wealth was not enough um, for some to be led to that conclusion. All of the stuff he's lost before, um, this would certainly cause people to, to come to that conclusion finally, that clearly for all of this to befall Job and for his skin to be visibly sickened and, and have boils, sores from head to toe, clearly Job has done something to offend his God, and therefore he is suffering the wrath of his God in some way. Uh, and we read that, I think, when the friends arrived, too, that they, they didn't even recognize him. He wasn't even recognizable to them. And therefore, um, this assumption that we read of, of the, the friends of Job seems to be clearly made already. Um, so Job's emptying at this point is, is complete and all-encompassing. He's lost all his wealth, all his servants, all his children, all his social status. He doesn't have an inch of healthy skin in his body. And as you go through the rest of the book of Job, it doesn't seem as though it's just these sores, but it just seems like a complete all-encompassing sickness, and then um, he's sitting in the ashes, more than likely outside the city on, in, in a trash heap, sitting on a trash heap, scraping his, his skin with broken pottery, truly a broken and um, destitute man. And as I was thinking about this, um, I think we can, we can be too harsh or just be too quick to, to look at the, the beliefs of of the ancient people and say how foolish they were to just say, how could they believe that all of this was the wrath of God? We know better than that. We know that clearly all of this stuff wasn't because of God. It was just these situations that befell him, and therefore it's foolish to, we think about Jesus, like, why was this man born blind? Was it the sin of his parents, him or his parents? And, and I think we, we read that and we say, how foolish could they be? Why would they believe that? That's just a, a silly thing to think, that all sickness befalls men because of their own sin. But as I was thinking about this, if I was to witness a man in the situation of Job, I don't think I would be so compassionate. As many of you know, in our first time, before we moved to Michigan, I worked at City Mission, and I think through that encounter with, with homeless people, with people who, who were in situations of addiction or in some way ended up becoming homeless, I became increasingly less compassionate, increasingly understanding that it was because of their own sin. It was, in some way, allow, their sin, God allowing their sin to run its course in their life, and therefore becoming increasingly jaded, increasingly... Um, hard-hearted towards seeing homeless people on the streets or wherever they may be and saying, well, clearly they, they deserve it. This is the result of their own sin, their own actions, and therefore they deserve this, and, and I'm not going to help them, and I'm not interested in, in doing any of that stuff, which was 
my heart in a lot of ways as I worked at and, and eventually left City Mission at that time. So I think it's easy to jump conclusions and think about how foolish that is, but then recognizing perhaps in, in my heart and perhaps yours of, of seeing how much we, we probably think in many of the same ways. Perhaps not directly the wrath of God, but simply just it's their own foolishness, it's their own sin, it's their own whatever you may want to say, their own addictions, their own what, whatever it may be that has caused them to be in this situation, therefore they've gotten what they deserve. And I think it's probably what they would have said about Job in that time as well. So just to have perhaps a bit of understanding that that though it may seem foolish that they believe those things at that time, that in our own ways we probably believe many of the same things. Um, yeah? Would you relate that to sort of like a, a legal understanding of God, where you think God is always building out to each one their due, whether it's good or bad? Probably. Kind of thing? Probably. And, and neglecting, like, I'm just thinking of the, the friends in this case. It, sounds, it does sound very pagan, right? And I appreciate your... your guidance to us and saying, look, you might think that sounds really pagan, like, you know, the gods are angry with yeah. you, kind of thing, but we realize in our own hearts we do the same thing. Um, yeah, I just wonder if that is a similar position to failing to recognize how, I mean, just like, predominantly gracious God is towards all of humanity, right? Absolutely, yeah, I think it's, it's a misunderstanding. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's helpful. Because yeah, I think we think about that and we think, yeah, God is doling out to them what they deserve. And it's a misunderstanding. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of what I deserve. It's, it's a misunderstanding of the gospel and, and how gra- gracious God has been to, to me in particular, but to mankind in general. <laughs> like, absolutely. That's hel- yeah, that's, that's helpful as well. Thank you for that. <clears throat> and then finally, as we wrap up this chapter, um, forgive me for not getting through as much as I had hoped, um, but... As we finish up this chapter, uh, we read of Job's wife coming. And, and I think, um, and then she, she seeks to, she tempts Job in, in the same way that, that Job has, that Satan has accused Job of, of what he would do, is curse God, turn from God, um, and that the same thing he sought to protect his children from, which is, is cursing God in chapter one. Uh, and, and though I do think um, she is in some ways, it's interesting to see that, God, that Satan has taken many, many things away from Job that he has chosen not to take Job's wife, and that um, in, this, in this section, in this part of the story, Satan is using um, Job's wife in some ways as, as his tool. Um, Calvin refers to her as Satan's tool, uh, kind of Satan is using Job's wife to, to further tempt him, to further um, exhort him or, or incite him to curse God. Uh, but I think we should also have compassion on Job's wife. Um, she too has, has lost all her children. She too has lost all her wealth. Um, and even then, we know because of the encounter in heaven that Job will not die. But again, to, to the people back then witnessing this in the time, going through these things, it must have seemed as though Job was on his deathbed, that he was going to be dead at any moment, that his sickness was so encompassing. All of this stuff had already happened that it seemed as though just a matter of time before God would take his life just fully. Uh, and we know that that won't happen because God has not given that power over to Satan in this, in this section. But yet, um, to, to Job and to Job's wife, that must have been what it seemed as though was going to happen. Um, so therefore, 
it's clear that Job's wife is, is sinning, but I think even in Job's response, he does, not, he, calls her, he does not call her a foolish woman, but simply says she's speaking as the foolish women would speak. So we even see Job's compassion on his wife, that though she incites him uh, to, to curse God and, and to turn from God um, and tempts him to sin, that he speaks kindly to her, compassionately to her. Um, and, and though we can clearly say that Satan is using her in this way, um, that perhaps we can have a bit of compassion on her as well. So as we finish that section, we see the trial's over. Job, in some ways, has, has passed the test. He's not cursed God. God's grace has, has preserved him to this point. Satan's accusations are undone. God is worthy of praise. Um, and, through, and now we move into the rest of the book, focusing on uh, the wisdom of God's people and suffering and how God's people can be wise, um, and that Satan, Satan has served his purpose and he's done away with. This is the last we read of Satan. He's not a part of the book anymore. Um, he's simply here to just set up this teaching of God and his wisdom to his people. And then just to briefly talk about uh, this arrival of Job's friends, we, read, uh, we don't know exactly what, where they're from, but either way we can probably understand them to be more than likely wise, highly respected, and prosperous men. Um, that they were probably the best, the cream of the crop in terms of the world's wisdom and, and what wisdom they could bring to Job. Um, and then we read of them not being able to recognize him, reminding us, reminding me of, of as we went through the book of Ruth, Naomi returning to Israel and them saying, is this Naomi? Is this almost this unrecognizability of, of those who go through suffering of Job is not even recognizable anymore, perhaps again because of his illness and his skin condition, but then just the, the toll that suffering has on us as humans. And then we, we read about this, this first interaction between Job and his friends, which sets up the, the context for the rest of the book of Job. So I only have a few minutes left, but I want to hopefully get through this. So if you would turn with me as we finish this morning um, to Revelation chapter 12. I want to take just a few moments as we, as we ponder Satan and in his, in his purposes in the book of Job and what he's accomplished uh, and what God has allowed him to happen. I think it's helpful for us to, to sit and think about Job's or Satan's posture and how he stands against us now as, as Christians, as New Testament believers, and, and seeing the role that Christ plays in this putting away of Satan, this putting away of Satan's accusations. Specifically, we read of, of so many times in Job of Satan's accusations, and I think it can be helpful, and I hope and I pray encouraging to us to read of what Christ has done with those accusations of the evil one. So as you're in, in, in Revelation 12, stay there for a second. Just a couple verses to go through before we get there. Colossians 2, verse 15, tells us that, that he, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So again, we, we understand that in some way Christ has disarmed these evil powers. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Colossians 2, Hebrews 2, both give us examples of how our Savior Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, has disarmed and in some way destroyed the power of the evil one. So as we open to um, Revelation chapter 12, um, I'm going to read verses 7 through 12 here. It says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels went down, were thrown down with him. 
And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So we get a very clear image here of, of Christ through his work on earth, through his work on the cross, of, of throwing down from heaven this accuser, this one who stands and accuses day and night. As we read of him accusing Job and accusing God in heaven, that that accuser has in some way by Christ been thrown down. And on the contrary, as we read um, in, in Romans 8, verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are, who are in Christ. God no longer puts up with or hears the accusations of Satan against his people, that those accusations of the evil one um, have been put away. We must understand um, that, that Satan is the accuser, and if therefore he is no longer able or um, has the power to accuse us, that his power is, is, is become to nothing. If he is no longer able to accuse God's people, then he really, in many ways, in the economy of heaven, has no power anymore. Uh, that Christ on the cross took and destroyed all of Satan's ability or power to accuse God's people, um, which instead gives way to our wonderful Savior instead interceding for us. That instead of thinking of, of Satan accusing us um, in heaven, that instead we get the beautiful and wonderful image of our Savior interceding for us in heaven. So Romans 8, verse 34 um, says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who is to condemn? There is no more condemnation. There is no more accusation. That instead it is Christ who died and is he who intercedes. In Adam, the sin of Adam, the blood of Abel, and our own sin stands ready and sufficient to condemn us, and Satan stands ready to accuse us. But Christ's perfection in his blood put away all accusation, giving us complete confidence in our own eternal security and standing before God, bringing to ashes and nothing the accusation of our great enemy, the devil. We must also be real and understand that we still have a great enemy, that he has been thrown down, but yet he is still um, one who, who acts viciously knowing that his time is short. He still launches vicious attacks, but he has been thrown down, um, and, and Satan is still working in great wrath. Therefore, our enemy is still a mighty dragon. He is still a roaming lion, and we, he still tempts us, and we still fall to temptation. But yet we can have complete confidence that in the economy of heaven, uh, these temporal victories, these temporal victories that it seems as though Satan may win uh, as we sin and, and give way to accusations and temptation in many ways count for nothing. That we will never, that he will never be able to accuse us as God's people um, who have been so thoroughly and completely made clean and washed white by the blood of Christ as we have the blood of Christ um, interceding for us in heaven, no longer the accusations of Satan. So let us, let us go ahead and pray together this morning. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, forgive me for my fumbling. Forgive me for the ways in which I have perhaps twisted or misunderstood your word, Lord. But I pray that in any way, in any case, it would be encouraging um, to your people and that your people would be fed with your word this morning, Lord. As we move into our time of, of worship together, as we sing and take communion and, and hear the preaching of your word, I just ask that you would encourage us, that we would just worship you this morning, Lord, um, with, with true hearts and, and uh, that you would just help us to be focused, that you would calm our own hearts and our own minds and the, and the hearts and minds of our children, allowing us to truly drink deeply from the well of your word this morning. We, all, we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.